Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Cray Bolger here with Mike Pratz. So today we're going to talk about poo and fro. Uh, we have an article, a prospective multi-center evaluation of point-of-care ultrasound for small bowel obstruction in the emergency department by Becker et al. This isn't the first time that we've covered small bowel obstruction, and we can link to our prior post on it, but there was just so much more new evidence. We felt it warranted another review. So why do we care about this? Well, this is a patient population that we might have the opportunity to prove that ultrasound has patient center outcomes that are improved by doing POCUS over our other traditional methods. Time to OR, time to disposition, time to treatment decision for patients with bowel obstruction. Now we know that a lot of times these patients are sick on the borderline of ill and throwing up and then we say, hey, drink a liter of contrast. That usually goes really well um, as you're shoving an NG tube down their nose. And so can ultrasound, A, get rid of that contrast, which is a whole separate debate, and B, potentially expedite their time to definitive treatment um, and not let them sit there and be so miserable for so long um, and potentially even expedite their time to the operating room. And the nice thing about this study is that it's probably one of the biggest we've had to date. And for whatever reason, poo seems to be popular this year. Yeah, I think that there was a meta-analysis on this topic. There's actually a couple different ways that people looked at it, but everything was coming up looking really good for ultrasound. We know it's a lot better than abdominal radiography with plain films, and it even seemed to approach the sensitivity of CT in a lot of cases. So it was nice for these researchers to see how this played out with a larger population. So let's talk about how they did this study. This was prospective and it was actually a multi-center trial. So this involved three different institutions. They were all in the US. Inclusion criteria were that they had to be adults and they had to have symptoms for a small bowel obstruction, although no specific symptoms were specified. And you're excluded if you were pregnant, basically, or if you were not planning to get a CT, because that was what they used as their comparison. So they enrolled these patients in the ED. They had a point of care ultrasound, which was interpreted at the bedside by the physician sonographer. And then they had to mark each study as either positive, negative, or they had an indeterminate category. Later on, we find out that the indeterminate studies were counted as a positive when they did their analysis. Essentially, they compared that to the CAT scan, which actually, Cray, you bring up a good point about the contrast. In their protocol, no oral contrast was given. It was IV contrast only, which is good for them. Ahead of the curve. Yeah. Now, the point-of-care ultrasound findings were also retrospectively evaluated by experts in point-of-care ultrasound. So they did a separate analysis to say, hey, if experts are looking at these same images, is the test then more accurate? Now, they decided on their power analysis that they needed 96 patients, and it ends up that they achieved that easily because they then expanded to more centers than initially planned. Who did these ultrasounds? Well, that's one of the interesting things about this study. Uh, there was a wide range of people that did it. It could have been 
emergency medicine residents, they had to be at least in their second or third year, or it could have been the uh, emergency medicine attending. Total of 41 different people were collecting these scans, so probably a wide range of learners. And to talk briefly about how to do this, I think we've covered that before. A lot of people are just kind of going in the lawnmower technique, looking at all of the quadrants of the abdomen. Sometimes you just can focus in on where it seems to hurt the patient more. Uh, and what you're looking for is dilation. In this study, they used 25 millimeters as their cutoff. Abnormal peristalsis, the to and fro or poo and fro, as we say keyboard sign, which they used as, a, as evidence of small bowel wall edema, which is when you can see those plicae circularis in the small bowel. They also did look for intraperitoneal free fluid or a transition point between the dilated and normal bowel. So how'd they do? They did really well. They got 232 patients enrolled, which is a pretty good sized study when we talk about POCUS. Um, the only exclusions that they had were that they weren't going to get a CAT scan, and that was 15 patients that they enrolled. So they ended up with 217 patients. 98% were only at two of their three sites. Yeah, they later say that it was because of some sort of change in personnel at that site, so presumably there was an explanation why that site couldn't enroll very many. So they had a pretty high incidence of small bowel obstruction, 42.9%. Um, and they also have a very different patient population than we do. Uh, the mean, or median BMI was 25, so fairly trim patients. Um, they usually had about two days of symptoms. Again, the symptoms were not clearly defined as to what they were. And 70% of the CTs went IV contrast only. So they still did have some that were getting to choke down contrast. So they looked at the accuracy of POCUS compared to CT scan. And their numbers are a little bit lower than what we've traditionally seen in the literature. Their sensitivity was 88% and their specificity was 54% with a likelihood ratio, positive likelihood ratio of 1.92 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.22. Again, this is a little bit lower than what we've seen, but I give kudos to the authors because they actually probably had a more accurate group of physicians obtaining this scan. It wasn't just the experts or just highly trained physicians. It was who's working that day. Their PGY2s had the highest specificity um, and their fellows with their PGY3s very near behind them had the highest sensitivity. So I think the closer you are into training, the more this is maybe part of what you view as normal and not kind of an added on thing to your basic training maybe the better you do. Um, they also may be more likely to want to please. <laughs> so they did a lot of reanalysis of these results that every time I saw the next way they looked at it, I lost a little bit of, I, I just had a little bit less confidence <laughs> in it because it looked like they're kind of splicing and dicing all this data to try to see what made it good, which it's all valuable information, but I think the primary outcome that you just talked about, Cray, is really where this paper uh, added to the evidence. So they looked at expert reviewers looking at it and they found that there was a higher specificity, now up to 80%, so positive likelihood ratio of about five. And then they also looked at the best case scenarios, like if they excluded all the indeterminate ultrasounds and excluded all the indeterminate CTs, then they actually had a really good sensitivity of around 94%. But I, at this point, I mean, you're just, that's not realistic. So I don't know how much we can really 
take away from that? I think that's helpful, though, to consider because those indeterminants are probably those early SBOs that we're catching where if we really are going to start focusing on patient-centered outcomes, those are probably not the people that we're most worried about. It's those bowel obstructions that have been obstructed for a period of time where we're starting to get concerned that we're going to lose tissue. Um, The longer you're obstructed, the more likely you are to be ischemic, have operative complications, have perforations. So those indeterminates maybe bother me a little bit less because could you repeat an ultrasound in a day or two if they're not getting better and keep them and do medical management, just like we would with an indeterminate CT scan? Yes. And so then do we filter those out to talk about time to OR, time to definitive treatment? Maybe. Um, So I agree splicing and dicing the numbers, not so great. But in this case, I kind of like taking out those numbers because I think that's less the patient I'm concerned about, their reduced length of stay in the ED, um, which I think is one of the patient center outcomes that they didn't talk about specifically in this study is time to definitive management, time out of the ED. Um, And I think that's something to consider when we're trying to say ultrasound helps. Great, we can diagnose everything in the world with ultrasound, but if nobody else in the hospital is using it and we're not changing what happens to the patient ultimately, honestly, who cares? Great point, and I think we'll discuss that a little bit more. But another thing in the results I wanted to bring up quickly that I think is useful for those of us that still will continue to use this for our small bowel obstructions, they found that dilation of the bowel was the most sensitive, about 87%, but not very specific. And the free fluid or the transition point were the most specific. But again, that's only 82% specific, so not not too good there. Interestingly, they compared the CT results to the discharge diagnosis, kind of testing their reference standard to see how accurate it was. And that was only about 94% sensitive or 90% specific for small bowel obstruction. So again, this isn't the perfect standard that they're using. So we have to keep that in mind, what we're comparing point-of-care ultrasound to. Interestingly, I always like to look at the false negatives and false positives to kind of see what fooled people. So I can keep that in mind when I don't want to be fooled. Two of the false negatives were ischemic colitis and inflammatory bowel disease. I don't know, that might be hard to pick up on ultrasound. I don't think I can look at the the lumen with ultrasound yet for ulcerations and such. Yeah, and then the false positives, there was some hepatic masses, ileus, large bowel obstructions, colitis, diverticulitis. Just keeping in mind that some of those things may mimic these findings of small bowel obstruction on ultrasound. So, Cray, what other limitations of this? You mentioned a little bit earlier about kind of the results that we care about or what we're aiming for with small bowel obstruction. So I think, you know, the fact that, I think a plus and a minus of this study is that they had what seems to be a fairly diverse scanner pool. I think that's very accurate of who we are as emergency physicians. Some of us trained with ultrasound, it was mandatory. Others of us are learning it after the fact when we've already have a workflow and a standard practice. And so I think the more studies like this with this heterogeneous Uh, pool of scanners, the more we can broadly interpret the results. It's great to say at a tertiary care center where everybody has a probe in their hand all the time or somebody has a probe in their pocket all the time that ultrasound works, but that doesn't apply if your 
20 years out of training, have only taken a course here or there, that person also needs to be able to use ultrasound in their practice. And the studies, we need to have statistics that represent them as well. I will say though, despite the presumed heterogeneity of their scanner pool, with only 30 minutes of training and a fairly low number of scans prior to training, I'd say they did pretty well. Yeah. Um, Which makes me think that maybe just a little bit more training because a lot of it was these indeterminates where that's just pattern recognition. And if you say, now we're gonna have them review 10 positive ultrasounds, can we increase these numbers just with a tiny bit more training? And I would argue yes. Um, I think one thing that this shows me is that this is a pretty simple scan to teach. Now, increasing the accuracy, to me, since they also took a look at how the expert reviewers did, and they honestly didn't do too much better, that tells me that maybe the problem is in the acquisition, not the interpretation of the images. Because if you have an expert looking at the same images, and it's still not ideal accuracy, maybe it's because those learners aren't getting the right images that they need to make the call. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think a lot of people don't know how how much to scan with this, right? There's not get these four views and be done. Essentially, you have to interrogate the entirety of the peritoneal space. That being said, if you get a loop of bowel in front of the area of most pain, you should try to milk them, move them, et cetera, and come back. And I think if you're not as comfortable with your ultrasound skills, you're less likely to do that. You're more likely to assume it has something to do with your acquisition, not the patient's anatomy. Um, I think those of us who scan more are probably also more persistent when we scan. Now, another quick limitation I just wanted to mention, this trial was registered on clinicaltrials.gov, so it's always good practice to check that out and make sure there's no big deviations from their original intentions. And when I did that, I found that they did make a few changes. So originally, this was planned to be a single center protocol, and the Criterion standard originally included the operative report discharge diagnosis in addition to the CT. So they seem to restrict that a little bit in their final protocol. They were going to look at length of stay in the emergency department as well, and it sounds like that got dropped from their protocol later. So none of these things are big deal breakers or huge red flags that they were manipulating the data, but it's always good to note when they take these deviations because maybe it means something or maybe there's some explanation for it. And I think a lot of those things you mentioned actually are what the next steps need to look like. We need to look at operative reports. How many of these people are actually going to the OR? Because the ones that are going to the OR are the ones where we can potentially change their outcomes, right? How many of these people are getting a confirmed diagnosis? How many are being medically managed? you know, what about these other diagnoses, like you mentioned before, that are we're missing? Do those have sonographic signatures we should be looking for as kind of red flags that are maybe steering us in the wrong direction? Now we have to, that's a great segue because there was another small bowel obstruction point of care ultrasound article that was published right around this same time. And I'm talking about the Boniface et al article published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And that one actually did look at some more patient-centered outcomes because they checked out the length of stay. So let me quickly run through this one because also an excellent study. This was prospective observational single center trial. They ended up having 125 patients. Their sensitivity was 87.5, specificity 75.3. So overall a little bit more specific but not really usable still. Now, when they looked at the length of stay, they noticed that 
CTs took about three hours and 42 minutes to get the preliminary interpretation, and the point-of-care ultrasound only took 11 minutes. So they're taking that to say point-of-care ultrasound can save a lot of time. Three and a half hours. Right, and that makes sense. I mean, there are some stipulations there, like you could easily look at the CT. You don't have to wait for the radiologist to say there's a giant bowel obstruction. But I think that it still stands that point-of-care ultrasound has a lot of potential to save patient's time and then ideally to some intervention yeah I think too one of the interesting things is they used a higher um, dilation um, to increase their sensitivity so they used three centimeters or 30 millimeters which is consistent with what I've heard from some of our surgical colleagues Um, and I think that's important because at 2.5 we do kind of go back and forth as far as ileus versus SBO. Um, and we may be picking up a lot of early SBOs or ileuses that are transitioning potentially to an SBO that maybe don't matter as much. Um, I think another um, important thing that kind of briefly got mentioned is us interpreting the CT scan. Well, surgeons are pretty comfortable looking at CT scans for bowel obstructions. We need to get our surgeons comfortable with looking at ultrasound for bowel obstructions if we really want to make an impact. Great points. Well, let me summarize this study. So this was a prospective multicenter trial that ended up enrolling 217 patients with suspected small bowel obstruction. They found that the accuracy of -of point-of-care ultrasound compared to CT was a sensitivity of 88%, specificity 54%, and that improved slightly when you looked at more experienced users. So the take-home points for this study are that, number one, maybe point-of-care ultrasound for small bowel obstruction was not as accurate as we thought based on the prior evidence. And number two, we definitely still need to keep studying this and looking at more patient-centered outcomes for this application. I'd like to thank the authors of both this trial and the other trial that we discussed. Wonderful addition to the evidence here. And thank you for listening to our podcast. If you want to find out more, you can go to ultrasoundgel.org, check us out on Facebook, or talk to us on Twitter. Until then, we'll talk to you later. More. 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 More.